Hey, what is up, movie lovers? Welcome back to the Movie Night Apologetics podcast. And today we will be going over the movie review of A Beautiful Mind. And I'm going to tell you why I related to John Nash's character from this movie and give you a little bit of my testimony about the lies I've struggled with about myself. And as it kind of pertains to the assurance of my salvation and what my hope and my goal is, is I really hope this is an encouraging podcast for you today and that you walk away knowing you're not alone. And when it comes to the inward battles that you, that are repeated in your mind and that you can actually focus on what is true and not believe the lies being whispered into your ears. And so I hope this is an encouraging episode for you today. So with that, let's start the show. Whether it's comedy, action-adventure, drama, horror, and everything else in between, all movies at least have one thing in common. They all share a message with you. This is Movie Night Apologetics, where I, movie apologist Clark, review and examine movies and their messages from a Christian perspective. So I just want to warn you guys up front, there will be spoilers in this review. I know it's a 20-year-old movie, and I'm saying, hey, spoiler alert, you know, because what I normally do is I give you a plot, I give the plot away, and that way, if you wanted to watch this podcast, not watch this podcast, if you want to listen to this podcast, you can do it without watching the movie. But I just want to say that with this particular movie, I'm going to have to spoil some stuff because the unfortunate part is there is a main twist that is a crucial part to the entire story of this movie. So if you hate spoilers, stop, pause this episode right now and be like, all right, I'm going to go home tonight after work. After the kids are in bed, if you have kids, after the wife's in bed, well, unless she wants to watch it, which my wife didn't, and say, all right, I'm going to play this movie, and then I'm going to come back and listen to the show if you don't like to hear spoilers. So with that, I just thought I would warn you of that. Now, for those that have seen the movie or don't really care about spoilers, I'm going to give you my full plot of the movie. But first, I want to give a shout out and a thank you to my former co-worker Mario for recommending me this movie. So, let's get into the plot of the movie. So, A Beautiful Mind is about this guy named John Nash, played by Russell Crowe. And Russell Crowe is really gifted and talented at mathematics. And throughout his college career, even though he is extremely talented at math, he finds it a little bit difficult to relate to other human beings. So the only three people in John Nash's life that he actually does have a real relationship with are his wife, Alicia, I think that's how you pronounce her name, uh, his friend from college, Charles, and Charles' sweet little niece, Marcy. So Nash is so gifted at his abilities in mathematics that he lands an appointment at MIT. But right before that, he actually becomes secretly hired as an FBI agent to crack secret codes for the Russian spies. Nash's boss in the FBI agency is named Parser, played by Ed Harris. So about halfway through the movie, though, John Nash learns a devastating truth. 
that Charles, his good old buddy Charles, the sweet little niece Marcy, and Parcher, the FBI agent guy, are all made up in his mind and that he is not really an FBI agent working for the government to crack crazy codes from Russian spies, but he is actually a man who has... Uh, this mental illness called schizophrenia. And if you don't know what schizophrenia is, it, it usually involves delusions, false beliefs, hallucinations, seeing or hearing things that don't exist, unusual physical behavior, and disorganized thinking and speech. And it's common for people with schizophrenia to have a paranoid thoughts or hear voices. So with this mental illness, John Nash has been struggling with the sickness for years and his wife, Alicia, has been trying to get him the help he needs to overcome it. And so both he and his wife make the conscious decision to stop taking the meds, to just ignore the three imaginary characters, Charles, Marcy, and Parsher. Because he decides to ignore them, eventually he is able to have somewhat of a normal life as years pass by. So one of the most cringe-worthy scenes that was like, oh man, like I, I tensed up during it and that it, it freaked me out was, so th- it was the part where the wife uh, left John Nash alone with the daughter uh, so that he could go give her a bath. But what she doesn't realize is that for months on end, he was stopping to, he stopped taking his medicine because for one, like when you're taking those medicines, you become numb. Uh, you know, you don't feel happiness, but you, you don't feel sadness. You're just kind of there in life. And uh, he wanted to be, uh, he, he didn't want the numb feeling anymore. And I can't really blame him, but because he did that, he started seeing the FBI agent again, and then he went out to a shed in, in, in the back of their house, and he had all these like crazy drawings and stuff on there. But she didn't realize this until after she had him go give his daughter a bath, and then she ran upstairs, and the rest is kind of history from there, thankfully. Uh, she caught the baby in time before the baby drowned. So with all that said, she is freaked out and she wants to leave him. She's like, I'm done. Like, this is not working. Like, my baby almost died. Like, you are talking to things. Like, he, he was talking to the FBI agent and he accidentally pushed her in and she fell over. And so she gets in the car to drive her and her daughter away when all of a sudden... And this is actually the part that I really loved the most about the movie. There's a few other scenes that I really liked, but um, this one in particular was actually really profound. So Nash all of a sudden realizes, like, when he's getting bombarded with the FBI agent, when his friend's talking to him, when Marcy's talking to him, he realizes that the sweet little niece Marcy has never aged. And he runs out to the car in the pouring rain while his wife is driving off. And he jumps right in front and says, hey, Marcy has never aged. And this is the turning point of him battling with his illness with schizophrenia. And this is where he really comes to the truth like, hey, actually, this 
is what I'm seeing isn't real. And this is a scene, like I said, among many others I really resonated with because I have been there in some sense, you know, with the lies that I have believed about myself when following Christ. And that's kind of where I want to pick up after the commercial break. So here we go. Let's do this right after this. You guys want to know a secret? Just because I have a podcast out on the podcasting platforms doesn't mean people will find the show right away. I know it's crazy, but it's true. So in order for this podcast to reach people when they search for a new movie podcast to listen to, I need your help. I would love a five-star rating and review from you. This will help greatly reach people because my goal for the show is to help people, whether they are Christians or people. People from other religions or beliefs understand the Christian worldview through the movies and their messages. So if you haven't already, please pause this right now and rate this five stars and leave a review. I would appreciate that so much, and that would just mean the world to me. Hope you guys are enjoying this episode, and now let's get back to the show. So it's safe to say that not all of us have a severe disorder of schizophrenia like the great mathematician John Nash. We may not see people that are there every day of our lives. We may not believe a lie that says, you know, work for the government as an FBI agent to be able to crack Russian codes. But many of us do believe in lies about ourselves. We could believe in a lie that says, you know what? You really just suck at your job. You never, you're never going to mount anything there. So just give up, throw in the towel. Don't even try to apply yourself because you will fail. Or it could be that you find yourself unattractive and either you don't know what God's word says about you or you do, but you're ignoring the truth that says in the Psalms that he fearfully And he wonderfully made you while you were in your mother's womb. And that you, as an image bearer of God, have intrinsic worth and value. Or you may be believing the lie about yourself that you are a really good moral person. And I've met a lot of people that believe that lie. You may think, hey, you know, I'm really deserving of God's grace. I'm deserving of his love and mercy. And you may believe that your good works can earn your way to heaven. And again, you either don't know what God's word says in scripture or you're ignoring what his word says about how morally bankrupt you are and that you can't earn his grace and forgiveness. Whatever it is, we can believe lies about ourselves, and we have to remember as Christians that there is a father of lies out there. His name is Satan. Uh, the one, his, basically his one and only purpose in this world is to kill, steal, and destroy. In Ephesians 6.12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
So there is a spiritual warfare going on around us. You know, one of my favorite preachers, Charles Spurgeon, says, consider how precious the soul is if both God and the devil are after it. The devil's purpose is to kill, steal, and destroy, but Christ's purpose is to seek and save that which is lost. And that just doesn't mean saving us from our sin and the wrath that is to come, but It's a seeking and saving and wanting to redeem the whole heart, mind, soul in us. And he wants to renew us and he wants to restore us. So I said at the beginning of this episode that I relate to John Nash's character. Of course, not in the same way. I don't see people that aren't there. But over the last decade of my life or more, I have had a consistent battle of trying to figure out, you know, it. Am I a child of God? Am I saved? Am I born again? Will I be with Jesus forever and eternity when I die? Or will I be separated from him in a horrible place called hell forever? This has been a nagging question on my mind, and I'll share with you why. For one, this life is short. At best, for most of us, we only live about on this earth for about, eh, say, 75 years on average, give or take, obviously. And I have been petrified of the thought of dying because I know that I'm going to stand before a living and holy God in eternity and give an account to my life. And so I have had about five or so instances where I've been really depressed in my walk with God because I have felt, I I have truly felt the weight of my sin in the light of God's holiness and his perfection and his justice. And I'll briefly share with you my struggles in doubting my salvation. And I won't give a whole lot of detail into them or how I came up with the conclusions. I mean, I'll give you a brief kind of summary of how I concluded it. But man, some of these uh, were a process of months to years. And for me to like go really in depth in it and the thought of it, I, I mean, we, I mean, you're talking a couple hours here and I'm trying to keep this at 30 or so minutes. So the first one that I've struggled with, I've struggled with this, um, particular question ever since I was a teenager learning about Christianity. And one of the biggest questions I had back then was, do Christians still sin after they become saved? Because I would read like verses like 1 John that say, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And so my consensus to this was, oh, crap, Christians don't sin. Well, after learning over the years with the help of a campus pastor, Derek, and with the help of some books by great Bible teachers and sermons and other pastors, that and scripture actually, too, obviously, that Christians still, do still sin but they don't love to sin like they did before they're Christians. So that was like one of the one of the big ones when I was growing up because I was like in this constant battle with that question. And then I get into about say uh the end of 2014, beginning of 2015 roughly, where is about 6 or 8 months before I got married to my wife Bethany in 2015. 
in August, and I read the passage in 1 Corinthians 6.16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. And so my thought after reading this was, oh, oh no, I am married to the person I had sex with four years prior to that point or three years prior to that point, whatever it was. And so I was in agony that if I married my wife, Bethany, or my soon-to-be wife, Bethany at the time, I would be committing adultery the rest of my life and would be like what First John says, practicing sin. And I, you know, I just have to really thank God for his graciousness because my pastor at Venture Church, who actually, he came to our church in 2014 and we were a small church at the time. So he kept meeting with me week to week and still, we still do meet week to week. And he just showed me the woman at the well in John chapter four and said that Jesus said that this gal who's at the well, she had five husbands, but the one that she was with now wasn't her husband. So Jesus confirmed that all her five marriages were legit. And so through t- through that and time, I eventually came out of that, obviously, because I'm married to my wife now, and we have three kids, and it's a great marriage. But I really, I, you know, that one was like about a year struggle of coming out through that. Like even the summer you know, I, because I, I think I was on, um, I was on Alaskan fishery boats at the time and I was still struggling with that like months before I was about to get married. So, but I'm just so thankful of that gracious and, and thankful to God that his graciousness was there for me in that time. Another one I struggled with, I think I struggled with this one before I got married, but I also struggled with it after was, do I have to be a martyr to prove myself faithful to God? Now, this one wasn't really a big one that I struggled with, but it was one that I definitely had a hard time with because I would read passages like when Jesus says, if anyone wants to save their life, you'll lose it. And whoever loses it for my sake will find it. Or Second Timothy 3.12, which says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus will be persecuted. When I read that passage and others like it, I thought, all right, I need to go buy a plane ticket. I just need to go to Turkey or something and preach the gospel and get beheaded by ISIS to prove that I would lay my life down for Christ at all cost. But then the thought occurred to me about all the faithful people who didn't get martyred for their faith but they were definitely followers of Christ. So then I had the other question of, am I sinning if I don't tell everyone I meet about Jesus? Because if I didn't share the gospel with everyone I met, I was sinning because I, you know, you have this glorious good news. And if you don't share, it's like, you know, if you were a doctor and you had the antidote to cancer, but you didn't like share it with a cancer patient, I mean, I'd be kind of a bad doctor in my mind, right? And and so that was kind of like my thought process, like, hey, if you're not sharing this gospel with everyone you meet, like, you are sinning. You are under rebellion. And, man, that fear, uh, 
in me. It was, I, I was stressed all the time. I was under like the condemnation of that. And finally, what was interesting was I was like, okay, I need to do something. I need to go out on the streets. I need to preach the gospel. And so I'm like get, getting these Bible tracks and I'm going out and I meet this evangelism group. And over time, as I meet with them and I do evangelism with them, they don't have the same kind of stress that I did. Yeah, they were wanting people to get saved. They want, they had a heart to preach the gospel to people who never heard of it, but they weren't like, Oh, if I don't go over that guy on the other side of the street and tell him, Oh, I'm a bad Christian. You know, I didn't get that sense from them. And so just seeing that it calmed me a little bit and it, it gave me some relief and I really appreciate it. I don't do the street evangelism as much anymore just because, you know, I've got three kids and I'm doing the podcast and I'm leading a Bible study and all that. But, you know, for a time there, it was, it was really impactful in my life and it, it really did help me. And then finally, we're going to get on to the last one, which is a little bit more controversial. And that is, Going to the right church. Because, uh, Christians have divided on this issue. And before I tell you what it is though, I want to give you a little bit of a backstory. So when I was going, so like I said, when I was doing that evangelism with that group, I wanted to get better at evangelizing. So I figured to get, you know, obviously to get better at something, you need to keep practicing practicing it for one, but also you need to learn from people who actually know what they're doing. And so there was this guy that when I was growing up, I heard of, and his name's Ray Comfort, and he's worked with Kirk Cameron and Way of the Master and Street Evangelism and all that. But he had a podcast called The Comfort Zone, and the main, and he was the main guy on it, and I was learning from him. And anyway, on this particular episode, someone emailed into the show and asked if his son was saved or they had concerns of their son going to a Catholic church because his girlfriend was Catholic. And so he wanted some wisdom in that. And Ray Comfort and his host said, hey, your son's not saved because a Christian, you know, basically a Christian wouldn't go to a church that goes against God's word about salvation. And I just want to say this, that even though I do have respect for Ray Comfort, what he does, I, you know, I view him as a brother in Christ. I do think his response was lacking a little bit with wisdom in that because he didn't know the full weight or the full picture of the story. And so at the time listening to this, I was also listening to another radio show uh, that is on the very super fundamental and conservative side of things. And this host of the show was a complementarian, which means both men and women are equal on the side of God, but they have different roles in the home and in the church. And then... I just want to say for the record, just kind of, show, kind of give you a picture. I grew up in an egalitarian home and egalitarian means men and women are still equal in the sight of God, but both can uh, have the same roles in the home and in the church. So after now hearing the arguments 
for the complementarian side, I started to believe that, hey, the church I am currently a member of is the wrong church. And if I stay in it, I would somehow prove that I wasn't a Christian because I would be going against what God's word says. And it's like, what do you do with that? Do I leave the church and find a complementarian church? And then there's going to probably be some issue that I find there too. Or do I really, and, and the other question I have was like, do I really need to leave a church that has been, that has a faithful male pastor who has helped me overcome my sin and help me walk with Christ? So with that, I decided to call up my wife's old pastor, Stephen, who is a pastor in Joseph, Oregon. And he's on the complementarian side. And if I could just say that he's basically a John Piper in the boonies, uh, really just uh, gifted at preaching. He's reformed. And so I thought, all right, I'm going to call this guy, tell him my backstory. I basically, my backstory of what I just told you and gave him and just give him all the other struggles that I have with the assurance of my salvation and then proceed to tell him about is complementarian versus egalitarian a essential issue to the Christian faith? And this is what he said to me, it, as far as my mind can remember. He said, do you think every church has all the correct, right doctrine, basically? I say to him, well, no. And he's like, yeah, not Every church has everything right about the Bible. That's when I realized it to something like obviously I had to process more, but I realized that all churches have people with opinions, but again, their opinions don't change the nature, the essential nature of the gospel. You know, their opinions on secondary issues don't make them false Christians. It was this conversation plus a conversation with my pastor, uh, Pastor Scott, about it and reading a book called uh, Finding the Right Hills to Die On by Gavin Ortland. Uh, it's a very good book about how to discern between essential doctrine, secondary doctrine, third-rank doctrine in the church. And he actually has this good podcast called Truth Unites, with, Truth Unites which I highly recommend. So in Gavin Ortland's book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, he covers essential Christian beliefs while looking at secondary and third rank issues. And one of them is being roles of men and women in the home and in the church. He clearly states in this book that it's a secondary issue. Not only that, but the people who endorse this book are really well known. Some of them being D.A. Carson, which I read his commentary on in uh, the Gospel of John, Sam Alberry, who is a guy that actually came to U of I and I got to see in person. But not only did these guys say it was secondary, but also I asked on a, another radio show called Pastor's Perspective, who they are complementarians, and they said it is a secondary issue. So with all that said... I do briefly just want to mention this, that Christians on both sides of the issue between roles of men and women in the church, uh, for my complementarian brothers and sisters, don't consider the egalitarian Christians as far-left-wing liberals. 
I can speak for my church that we love the word of God and we are a people who want to pursue God and holiness and righteousness. And for my egalitarian brothers and sisters, do not think of complementarians that they're just a bunch of women suppressors. I truly do believe that each camp that they are both doing their best to follow after God. And I know after researching both of the views that there are good arguments for either side and we can have our differences, but let's find common ground in the essentials of the Christian faith, which you'll find in the Apostle Creed and the Nicene Creed. And so what is my point with sharing all of this with you? And what does it have to do with the movie A Beautiful Mind? Well, I believed a lie for years and years and years and wasn't living in the reality of who God says I am about being redeemed and made new because of his son Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross and the resurrection. Like John Nash, when he finally looked at Marcy and said, She hasn't aged in all these years. I had to finally expose the lie for what it is, that the enemy knows my love for God's word, and he was going to twist it to get me to stop following him. So there is such a thing, again, as spiritual warfare when we are Christians. His one and only purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. And Paul says, and tells us in Ephesians to put on the full armor of God. And I, I have to say, like when my wife and I, we visited a church in Montana one time in Missoula, Montana, and it was about this passage in Ephesians. And the guy gave this quote that I'll never forget. He said, you know, just because we have the armor of God doesn't mean the spiritual warfare is easy. I have to remind myself and daily preach the gospel to myself and remind myself that Jesus loves me despite having these little whispers in my ear that says, hey, hey, hey you, movie apologist Clark, you're not saved. You don't witness enough. You still sin. Are you, you're not even going to the right church, dude. Like you're just a little rebellious heathen. And I like John Nash. All right. All right. He's speaking to me. You know, the parser is speaking to me. Charles is speaking to me. Marcy is speaking to me. But I got to ignore these lies. And I got to focus on what's true. Paul says in Philippians 4, Finally, my brothers, whatever is true, whatever is Honorable, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever is just, what, think about these things. God's first priority is for us as believers to focus on what's true. So I have to ignore these little lies by the enemy, by Satan, by his dominions, whatever it is, and focus on what's true. And the same is for you as well. You know, it's funny, when I look back on these lies and these struggles that I've gone through over the years, even though they were very hard, and I don't wish to go through them again, I really, 
don't wish to go through them again. But I do believe that God intended this for his good and his glory. And I'll show you how with the question, I, when I agonize over do Christians struggle with sin, this led me to a deeper biblical truth of how God calls us to live as believers, that we are to pursue righteousness because he has been, we have been saved. So this struggle to help me to realize that we shouldn't sin and abuse God's grace. Read Romans 6 on that. With figuring out if sex constitutes marriage, God showed me how important marriage, the marriage covenant is. And it has led me to keep pursuing to become a better and better husband over the years. Not saying I'm the greatest husband in the world, but I think my wife would attest that I have gotten a lot better at things in our relationship. And then with the martyr thing and thinking I had to be persecuted and killed for my faith, I think Jesus was showing me, are you willing to do that in your everyday life? You know, I think it's so easy to buy a plane ticket, go over to Turkey, preach the gospel ISIS, and get beheaded. But it's far harder to wake up every single morning for 50, 70, whatever years you're on this earth and say to King Jesus, Jesus, today is your day. I will give it to you. Eugene Peterson, the one who wrote the message Bible, calls it long obedience in the same direction. Jesus, I'm going to give you this today. Like, help me to renew my mind. Help me to change my mind. Help me to focus my mind on you. Long obedience in the same direction is far harder than just proclaiming the gospel to ISIS and getting beheaded in a moment. The evangelism one taught me, guess what? Everyone is going to die and stand before a living and holy God. And God taught me that we as Christians need to and must fulfill the Great Commission and make disciples. And the women in ministry, well, that one taught me the importance of distinguishing between essential doctrines of the Christian faith and secondary and third rank issues. It was in that trial where I coined the quote, the narrow road is a tightrope, or the narrow road is not a tightrope, and the gate is not a crack. Yes, to be a Christ follower is narrow, but it's not so narrow that you take one little step over here this way or that, and you're just, you're done. You're, you're, you're perished. Otherwise, it'd be very, it would be a very frightening thing to figure out which Christian church or denomination you should attend, right? Like, like, again, we have to focus on the essential, like, doctrines of it. And this isn't to say that every church that professes Christ to be a a legit church. There are churches that profess to believe in Christ, but they have a false sense of who Christ is and his person and his work. And we have to be aware of those. But just because a good Bible-believing church leans in a different way on, say, rules uh, between men and women, or if they are Arminian or Calvinist or a sensationist or versus a continuationist or 
some have an old earth kind of view or others have a young earth view or a post-trib view or a pre-trib view or whatever, it doesn't mean that they are a false church. So with all that said, I can honestly say that God has used all of the enemy lies and the struggles that I've faced for his good because now I get on here and tell you the struggle I've gone through. And so what do we do? How do we ignore the lies and focus on the truth in a very practical way? And there's a scene from the movie that I want to share. And so this is now she's receiving his reward and he gives this speech. I'm going to share with you a speech because I thought it was good. And then, you know, we, there's a lot to unpack in it, but I think, uh, the last part of it, we can kind of grab and show some gospel truth in it. And here it is. So I've always been believed in numbers, in equations, in logic, and reason. But after a lifetime of such pursuits, I ask, what truly is logic? Who decides reason? My quest has taken me to the physical, the metaphysical, the delusional, and back. I have made the most important discovery in my career, the most important discovery in my life. It is only in the mysterious equations of love that any logic or reasons can be found. I am only here tonight because of you. And that's when he's looking at his wife, Alicia. You, and then he says, you are the only reason I am. You are all my reasons. Thank you. In order for Nash John Nash, to overcome his illness, he had to have help from his loved ones, especially his lovely wife. Did you notice that in all my dealings with the issues and overcoming them, that I had help by either my pastors or from different people? God really did intend for us to be in community with believers and to talk through things we find difficult in scripture. We are not, we are not meant to be islands. We are not meant to battle these lies playing in our heads on our own. So practically focus on truth and reject lies. We have to be reading God's word. We ought to be in constant prayer with him and be surrounded by a community of believers to help us be discipled and to think through these lies and to focus on truth. It's a very simple formula, but it's a hard one to do. So I just ask, hey, ask God to help you and guide you. I'm, and we're going over in my men's Bible study that he's a good shepherd and he's not going to steer you wrong. So I just, uh, you know, that was just my prayer for this episode to seek him, look for him, pray for him within these lies that are being whispered to you. Ask him to help you and ask him to give you a couple people that you can confound, like confine your worries in and talk with them and go through them and look at the Bible together. So anyways, hey, I've talked long enough on this episode. This is probably going to be my longest episode thus far that I've recorded. Didn't mean to, but hey, that's just how it is sometimes. So with that said, like my friend Blaine always says, don't party too hard without me. What? Catch you guys later.
Whether it's at home or at the movie theaters, Movie Night Apologetics exists to help you, the listener, know the Christian worldview through the movie's messages. I am movie apologist Clark, and this is Movie Night Apologetics Podcast. 